0: When God sends a prophet, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And since so many of my students tend to be, you know, kind of out of mountain holiness kind of religious circle, they'll generally say, oh, that's a good thing when God sends a prophet. You know, that's good. Well, if you look in Scripture, God almost never sends a prophet To slap you on the back and say, attaboy, you're doing great. If you have read any of the prophets, you'll know it's just really hard to find the attaboy section of Amos. It it doesn't exist. God sends a prophet uh, seasonally. He sends a prophet when you need a prophet. And it is almost always you're screwing up. You're not actually keeping the covenant. Now, There will be two sections to the prophet. There will be the, thus saith the Lord, you offended the covenant. And then there'll be, thus saith the Lord, in the future there will be hope. But really, any time a prophet comes, it really means you need to repent, and it's a bad sign. In the New Testament, if an apostle sends you a letter, it's kind of the same thing. It's not completely the same thing, but it's close enough for government work. Uh, The letters do have a few more attaboys in them than, say, the prophetic oracles, but not quite as much as you would like, and you only get a letter in the New Testament if you're a church, if there's something you need to repent about. If if there is something going wrong, if if the apostles need to correct your course, that's when you get a letter. Um, Also, there is oftentimes, although not quite as often in the prophetic oracles, uh, there is also usually oppression and violence. When you read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Uh, One of the things that will stand out to you is that these men talk about violent things a lot. And there's a reason for that. In the prophets, uh, violence tends to be the providential punishment of God on a rebellious church. You have been breaking the covenant. You've been idolaters. You have broken the moral law of God. Therefore, God is sending uh, the Assyrians, he is sending the Babylonians, it's his punishment. In an apostolic letter, it's not necessarily for that reason. Uh, in an apostolic letter, being on this side of the cross, oftentimes when oppression and persecution are mentioned, it's actually a sign that you're being faithful. Uh, This week in men's Bible study, we were moving through the book of Acts. And right at the end of chapter five in Acts, there is this passage, which we looked at for a little while. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Uh, In the Old Testament, violence tends to be punishment. In the New Testament, violence tends to come from the hand of a world that actually hates Christ, and it's a sign that God is blessing you, that the world hates you. But the distinction might be lost on somebody suffering the violence. Violence can be rather uh, demoralizing. And oftentimes, when an apostle has sent you a letter, persecution is happening. So you get this letter when you need to repent and when you're suffering unjustly. Um That describes 1 Thessalonians pretty well. In the city of Thessalonica, this congregation has a lot that God is going to call them to task for. It's only five chapters long, but when you start looking at the uh, list of things that the Apostle is going to bring up, uh, it's fairly lengthy. It begins with lack of love among the brethren. Uh, That's a perennial problem in New Testament churches. We've seen it elsewhere. It's going to be here. It makes sense. I mean, we are redeemed sinners. Uh, We are not perfected yet in glory, and uh, obedience to God is love. And if we are still in need of sanctification, then to some degree we're going to not love our brothers, but it's to a degree in Thessalonica that the apostle has to call it out directly. Uh, brother is not loving brother, and it's coming out in a rather specific way. Uh, he has to call them out for cheating one another, having to do with their he and she-ing. Um, it may refer to adultery. It certainly could include adultery. But it seems like in this small pool in Thessalonica, you have men using uh, dirty tricks to steal other people's women. Uh, This is chapter uh, 4, verse 3 through 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testify. So whatever's happening in Thessalonica, you've got people perhaps even using the name of God to steal other people's girls. That seems fairly far-fetched, but I've actually watched it happen once. I watched a minister run off with a guy's girlfriend because he had received a word from God that he was too immature to have a girlfriend, but it turns out the minister wasn't, so he would go ahead and take the girl because that was the will of God. I remember thinking at the time, wow, I'm watching the book of First Thessalonians play out right in front of me. It's, you wouldn't think that would happen, but uh, it's going on in Thessalonica. It has to be addressed. You have busybody Uh Whenever you have a community like a church, uh, if, if you're doing it right, you're actually pretty tight-knit. A church becomes like a family, and it is a family. You have family language used for a church. Unfortunately, even those things that are blessings can promote vices uh, specific to them. And one of those vices that gets promoted in churches a lot is busybodying. We all live and work together in the Lord. We know each other like family. We know each other very well. Uh, it becomes very easy for us to develop opinions about what other people ought to be doing and uh, to bring that to bear, and one step leads to another, and you're micromanaging somebody else's life. Well, that's happening in Thessalonica, and the apostles are going to have to call them out for it. Um, you have a lack of understanding of how life, death, and resurrection work. When we get to chapter four, we're going to discover that in the middle of this persecuted minority, which is facing real violence against itself, there is not really an understanding that if you die before the Lord returns, you're going to be okay. There's a real fear that if you die before Jesus's triumphant return, you're out of luck. And the apostle is going to have to deal with that. He is going to have to emphasize that things happen on God's timetable and not on man's. He's going to have to emphasize that the dead in Christ are not really dead. Uh, All very basic theology for you and me, but it wasn't that basic for them. And it was causing a major problem for them. And so the apostle is going to have to uh, bring their doctrinal understanding into line. Uh, Part of the issue, though, is that they believe that the Lord is coming back next week. Uh, That kind of theology, I realize you don't expect that to develop, and it's very, very rare, but every now and then you find among Christians an emphasis that uh, it's likely that Jesus is coming back next month, and uh, there's really not a whole lot of purpose in doing anything because the Second Coming is going to happen really quick. Uh, as small and blind as that view might be, it had taken root at Thessalonica, and one of the things that it caused at Thessalonica was an amazing laziness. (laughs) If you believe that the Lord Christ is going to return in mere moments, you don't really feel greatly called to do anything significant. Why would you? I mean, why would you develop a life worthy of the calling you've received if the calling you've received is only going to last until the third episode of this uh, premillennial dispensationalism docudrama, and everybody gets taken off the earth? Well, that view seemed to have settled into Thessalonica, and some people were saying, I don't really need to work. I don't need to make a living because we got plenty of food and things here in the church, and we can just live off the excess of it until the Lord comes back next week. So I'm not going to do anything. And then what happens if you have a lazy people who are just kind of laying about? Well, it produces an environment where you promote even more busybodiness, and so it comes up again uh people are getting up in each other's business because they got nothing else to do because they've stopped doing anything significant. So there is a huge amount at Thessalonica that the apostle is going to have to to deal with. And for some reason the violence against the kingdom of God in Thessalonica would be particularly violent. Uh, as you read the New Testament books Violence against Christians was not a every day of the week occurrence. It was sporadic, but for some reason in Thessalonica, uh, the people of the world specifically hated the kingdom really badly there, and they brought it to bear on God's people really sharply. To the point where, when Paul writes a follow up letter, this is how he describes that violence. <coughs> beginning at verse 3 and going to verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves, most of you, among the churches of God, for your patience and faith, In all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed." It's fiery language, but it's language for a fiery moment. Paul has to tell them, unlike in the case of (laughs) Old Testament Israel, this violence is not God saying he's punishing you. It is saying uh, the world hates you because it loves me. And that is a, a step up. That is actually a positive But again, if you're experiencing it, you kind of need to hear somebody say it. And so the Apostle is going to have to say it in both letters. Um, And if you take the fact that Scripture is proportional, um, Paul describes Christ destroying those who are persecuting God's people with flaming fire and driving them into damnation. That's only proportional if that's what the people of earth want to do to God's people. And it is, they, they, they want to stop out the kingdom. This is a very hard place to be a Christian. Uh, this letter is going to have to deal with some very, very significant things. Have you ever heard anyone say, I wish I could just live out my Christian life in a, one of those Holy New Testament churches. If we could only get back to Bible times, if, if I could be in a New Testament church, it would be a it would be a godly moment if I could be in a New Testament church. Which New Testament church would you be talking about? Corinth, where you have sexual immorality that shocks the pagans? Would you be talking about uh, Colossae, where... the the idolatrous practices of the world come to bear on the church in a way that would make Las Vegas blush. Uh, Are you talking about Thessalonica with all of its problems? Uh, The truth is New Testament churches are churches that are in need of correction and they are in need of encouragement, just like churches today. So if you find yourself in a body of Jesus Christ that needs correcting and needs encouragement because it's under the persecution of the world, well, congratulations, you're actually in a New Testament church. And this is a New Testament letter directed to one such church. Um, With all of that in mind, where do you think the correction passages start in 1 Thessalonians? You got a lot to to work with. So when does the Apostle begin to work with it? Anybody know? If you know 1 Thessalonians, it's a short little book, you probably read it, you will know that all the things that I just described only begin to get dealt with in chapter 4. You're over halfway through the book, and Paul doesn't address them until then. You would ask yourself normally, why? These things seem very significant. They seem like they are of the utmost importance. Why doesn't he do a Galatians where, from verse 3, the apostle begins correction? Well, the answer is, in Galatians, you have churches that are denying justification by faith alone, and without justification by faith alone, you don't have anything to build on. As the Reformers rightly point out, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is literally the foundation of everything. So if that's gone, you got nothing to work with. But that's not missing here. Um, You have a people of faith. In fact, you have a people who are waiting in faith for the Lord Christ to return. Uh, Paul will have to correct them and say the Lord will come at his own time, but it is very significant how faithful they feel to the Lord and his coming. If you thumb through 1 Thessalonians you find a pattern that in the last couple verses of every chapter of it, there is a reference to the Lord's second coming. They testify concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we get to chapter two, this is how things will end. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Or chapter three, as it comes to an end. Uh, now may the Lord, now may God now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints chapter 4 Uh, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. Um, The last blessing of the book, effectively, in chapter 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming. These are people who have faith in Christ. They are waiting, longing for their Redeemer. Uh, They're faithful people. They just need correction. How do you correct people who are faithful, but they need correction? Well, Paul will subtly answer that in chapter two, where he talks about his own ministry and listen to the words that he uses as an apostle. Chapter two and verse six and seven. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. I mean, we're apostles. We can demand you to do what we want, right? I mean, what office in God's church is higher than apostle? Well, Messiah, but that's taken. One guy's got that. Uh, I'm an apostle. I can tell you what to do, but... We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Or further down in the chapter, beginning at verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you As a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So in the space of a handful of verses, Paul has described himself as like a mother and like a father. These are not people who are joining the world to attack the kingdom. When you reject the doctrine of justification by faith alone... You're pagan. You know, you're not a saved person. These are saved people. Paul says, how shall I govern a saved people that needs comforting because the world is attacking them? How shall I govern a saved people who have serious problems? I mean, these people are what moderns would call a hot mess. How will I minister to them? I will minister to them. As a loving mother, I will minister to them as a caring father. I will be gentle. I will be firm as a father, but as a father. You don't tie your shoes now. Well, you'll tie them later, but I'm not going to beat you half to death. I'm going to teach you to tie your shoes because I'm a loving father, and we're going to get this. We're going to work at it but it's going to be that kind of kind-heartedness that you would find in a family. And when you look at this letter, what Paul describes in chapter 2 is exactly what he does. He doesn't even touch their moral or doctrinal failings until he gets to chapter 4. Rather, in chapters 1 through 3, he constantly reminds them, of who they are in the Lord Christ, where they have come from in Christ, the blessings they have received, and the journey that he has taken with them. He will talk about how this persecution is not new, but it took place when I was there, and uh, you have come so far in it. You have come so far in sanctification. The Spirit has had its way with you up till now. It will be absolutely nothing but encouragement until chapter four, even when there is needed correction. Because that is how a father cares for his children. That is how a mother comforts them. Paul is being very much like his Lord Christ. We don't actually have a lot of examples of Christ. Uh, mentoring and correcting people in this fashion. Uh, It's usually more in public and that sort of thing. But uh, there is one very notable exception. It is Christ reestablishing Peter after Peter has denied him three times. It's extremely famous that Peter does that. Everybody who knows anything about the New Testament knows that the Apostle Peter denies Christ three times. But listen to the exchange between his Lord and Peter while the Lord is working to restore him. John chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Peter, do you love me more than these? Most have taken as a reference to the other apostles. There's not really a reason for that, because uh, he's standing in the midst of a bunch of fish, and he has, in fact, gone out fishing, which is his own life. Jesus is basically asking him, Peter, do you love me more than the world and the life you know? Do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than these? He said to him, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's actually a very tender hearted moment. Uh, The number three is sacred. It's a number for perfection. And Peter is asked three times, do you love me? And Jesus accepts the answer, but there's something going on in the exchange that you only see in the original. Uh, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me, which is the highest form of love? Do, Do you... Do you love me above all things? And every time Peter responds, he doesn't use that term. Peter responds with, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you, which is another word for love. It means you are my best buddy. You are my family. But it's not agape. So technically, when Jesus asks him, do you agape me? Peter kind of says, no, I'm not there yet. And then that last time where Peter is troubled at heart because our Lord asked him, do you love me? Well, and the third time when Jesus asked him, do you love me? What term do you think he uses? It's not agape this time. It's phileo. Peter, do you really even hold me in the highest regard? Do you really even do what you say you're doing? And Peter responds with, Lord, you know all things, and I am at that level. I do phileo you, it is true, I have gotten here, and Christ accepts it. The Lord God himself, God in flesh, finishes the account with, feed my sheep. It is about as fatherly An admonition as you could ever watch. It is about as comforting an admonition from a mother you could ever see. Our Lord gently restores Peter and tells him, you will not always be where you're at. After this exchange, this is what comes next. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, You girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, you don't die for someone you just phileoed. Doesn't happen. I mean, they're important to you, but honestly, at that level of love, it's here's to you, here's to me. Maybe never disagree, but if we do, well, to blazes with you, here's to me. But Jesus says to him, there will come a time where that's not true of you. You say you phileo me now, you do. You will be sanctified. You will be brought to this point. You will adopt me in the end. And so he does. I was like a nursing mother, a caring mother. I was like a tender father. That is how Christ restores Peter. It's even how the apostles will restore Corinth. Corinth is famous for being Corinth. If anyone knows anything about the New Testament, and you ask them, what is the worst church listed in the Bible? They may say Laodicea, but if they don't, they're going to say Corinth. Because Corinth has so much going on that is sinful and wrong and twisted that it's literally famous for it. But listen how the apostle begins his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1 and beginning at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. Now, can you imagine you're writing to the Corinthians? These people are are the brokenest of the broke. You've got a guy living with his mother-in-law, and the church is celebrating it. They are progressive Christians 2,000 years early. And the apostle says... I think my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Corinth, you have been given every gift you need, Corinth, rebellious Corinth, I rejoice in the grace of God that has been given to you. I know that God is faithful. I know that he has enriched you in every way. Now, you have to picture yourself watching this exchange and going, they've been enriched in every way. What were they like before? But Paul is not lying. The grace of God has reached them. The grace of God has begun to sanctify them, even Corinth. And even with Corinth, Paul begins with, I know, You lack nothing from God. I know that God is faithful. It's like we were talking about in Bible study this morning. If you're faithless, he's faithful. He can't deny himself. The apostle is building his ministry on that very truth. God will do beyond what we can imagine. So let us lead like fathers. Let us lead like mothers, because God is at work. What Paul does is he goes from there and begins to remind them, as I said, of who they really are in Christ. And that was going to be the sermon, but my voice can't handle it. So this has simply been the introduction to the sermon that was going to be given. But we will take up here next Lord's Day. (coughs)